Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The man team. Mega Bears fan. So, real professionals here. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Polycast episode 410. I am Canis Albanus, and I am joined with our full cadre of regular people, Makalua. We're professional, certain definition of professional. The me and team. Welcome to die. And Mega Bears fan. It took two and a half years, but that bloody COVID finally caught me. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, uh, last week. Just make sure you don't also get Corvids at the same time. It's unpleasant when that happens. Oh, my goodness. Liza, she just... She's hitting the tail with the microphone with her tail. I don't know if anybody can hear that, but nope. So far, no. <laughs> well, I'm worried about the recording myself, but yeah. Good old kitty sabotage. Feline sabotage. See, I've been sitting at this desk for almost two hours now. She has been on my bed sleeping the whole time. The moment I start talking to people online, here she comes. I oh, can't yeah, ask talk to you. Oh, I, I'm recognizing that I didn't put a topic in the or a link in the chat for the first topic. Did I? Doesn't look like it. No, it doesn't. Well, shoot. So I was wondering. I was like, okay, I can say that's been released, but uh, then what? Give me a second. I could have swore we had already talked about this releasing, but I guess no, not. We talked about its release being delayed. Oh, okay. Well. Okay. Here, here is the link to the uh, original, um, or to the page that talks about what the album is. And if we want a Civ Fanatics link, I'm sure I could find one of those pretty quick. Actually do my job. Show prep. What is it? Apparently they didn't have one. No wonder I didn't have a link. <clears throat> or they did and it wasn't posted. Oh, they, the, the, um, the post is something that we are not discussing today, which is a... Uh, conversation with Christopher Tin about soundtracking humanity, multiculturalism, language, you know, that stuff. And it's a webinar. Mm. Well, in the meantime, you can just listen to The Lost Birds if you really like stuff that Christopher Tin did, you know, like Baba Yetu and other things with the Civ series. And it's supposed to be sort of an eulogy for, in music, for bird species that have gone extinct over the years. Yeah, we have quite a few that have just... Because of humanity moving in places, or pollution, or other reasons, just have gone extinct. Or they're hiding in some deep part of the wilderness now that nobody's ever going to count that they're still alive. That's that too, because I've heard of bird species being thought extinct and coming back because they finally spotted them. But. Yeah. Even then, though, in a lot of those cases, those populations are so small that they are functionally extinct. Yes. When I was doing research about the birds that he was talking about... Uh, I found an interesting case of the Carolina Carolina parakeet. Um, it was in decline before humanity arrived here, before Americans arrived, and we didn't help it. But in 1896, it was still known to be in good health, and by 1904, it was completely gone. 
and nobody's quite sure what happened that caused those them to disappear so quickly. The current leading thought is like poultry disease, but parrots. Yeah, I was I was gonna guess some sort of animal based sickness. The weird thing is parrots don't usually get that kind of disease because they're they are evolutionarily fairly different types of birds. Passerines don't usually get like bird flu, for instance, in that sense. At least the kind that was around at that time. There was one that was pretty active in China at the time, and it was found 10 years later in America, but the birds, the specimens we've found don't show that that's what killed them. So it's a mystery. Go into ornithology and find out what happened. Although I still think uh, mass disease is probably the best guess, even if it's not through a usual mechanism for spreading it. Just because I mean, anything else would, to, would, would require some kind of dedicated effort or something that would be more likely to be documented or reported somehow. Yeah. They mostly lived in swamps, which is why they had trouble with habitat loss in the U.S. because people were clearing out swamps. They were mostly yeah. confined to the Seminole areas of Florida that are still pretty swampy even today. So, And if it's know, not I'm disease, like... I think the second best guess would probably be some kind of in introduction of some kind of invasive species, either some plant that uh, <clears throat> you know killed off and took over all the things that the birds were eating or you know some kind of predator. Yeah. Maybe cats. Maybe people imported too much cats into Carolina. I, I don't think cats head out into the swamp uh, no, too often. No, that's New Zealand. <laughs> cats kill Although birds cats are everywhere. extremely destructive. They're way up there as invasive species. But I don't think that they dominate in swamp terrain too much. Like, not domestic cats. No. Or feral cats. Yeah. I mean, anything like that's like that is probably not going to be dominating the Everglades. It'll dominate a lot of other places, but... Well, now we got snakes in the Everglades, but I have There's listened... lots of things in the Everglades. <laughs> I have listened to the album. It is spectacular. Not a lot of foreign language in this particular album, which is kind of a disappointment, but it has English lyrics. Is that uh, preview track still up on YouTube? I know last time we talked about this, there was a, a free, like the first track was, uh, was on YouTube. There's probably more than just the preview one. There's probably a couple others, too, because I know... He was talking about the process for making the, what do you call it, the visualizations for those videos in his Kickstarter updates. Yes, I Kickstarted it. Shut up. Well, I, I do believe that he's an independent artist. I don't think he's on a record label. Nope, he's on a record so, label now. Oh, is he? Oh, yep. okay. That's why he's using English voices now. And that's also why his uh, album was delayed by a week, because... The James Bond 50th anniversary album was coming out the same day as his. So he's like, you know what? Maybe we should wait. Is it also why he got to uh, record with the World Philharmonic and use the Abbey Road Studios, though, since he's got an actual label? Yes. It's a Warner Brothers yeah, saw, label, so. Yeah, I saw those two details and I was like, wow. Don't, uh, don't dare play any of his stuff in a podcast now. Not that we could before, but. And now. Get Warner's attention. I don't want Time Warner's attention. Anyway, we will move on to the next topic, which is a long belated topic from June of this year. Anton Stranger, former developer for Firaxis Games and one of the people who worked on the Civilization VI New Frontier Pass, and according to him, every other game since Civ V's. Brave New World, is that what it's called? Yeah. 
my brain. Brave is... New World was one of the Civ Five expansions. The, yes, the, the expansion. Yeah, he uh, gives a talk at GDC. I don't remember when GDC is. I think it's in like January or February or something, somewhere in the early part of the year. And his talk is mostly, uh, this is what we do at Civ when we're trying to deal with things like cultural sensitivity and also why we did the New Frontier Pass the way we did and uh, why we consider it a success. Did anybody else watch it or remember anything about it? I watched it like three months ago, three, four months ago. I've forgotten most of it. That was the problem. Uh, Basically, uh, I actually took notes because I'm channeling Dan today. Um, Some of the things I want to... Do you have a spreadsheet? No, I don't have a spreadsheet for this. Okay. But I have a spreadsheet for something else. Then you've not quite reached the level of Dan yet. Well, just copy-paste the notes into the spreadsheet, and then you're good. That's cheating. Yeah, when you have a spreadsheet and a top ten list on that spreadsheet, then you have gone full Dan. I didn't see anything in the rules that said that that's not allowed. Therefore, it is not technically cheating, and it's fine. The actual conference discussion had quite a bit of information about, you know, cultural sensitivity and how having an anthropologist is a good idea if you're making a history game. You know, all the the fancy stuff that you have to have if you're doing anything in the public eye that has to do with any kind of non-Western culture, because... I think he said they actually have an anthropologist like on staff, yes. like on the payroll, like as an employee of the company. So it's not just like some contractor that they go to or like calling up some local university student or whatever <laughs> and being like, hey, we want to put this in the game. What do you think? It's like they have an actual, you know, anthropologist on uh, on payroll. So if you're getting a degree in anthropology and you love video games, those are apparently jobs that exist. Why not too many, though. Probably, yeah, probably not too many. Probably very few, in fact. Like, maybe count on one hand the number of studios that probably have that. Yeah. Is it also the number of studios that actually care about that? Increasingly more and more. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Paradox maybe has one. Paradox, I doubt it, because Paradox has probably got... You know, they're, they're in Sweden, so they probably all know it endemically. I doubt that. <laughs> Just because their geography knowledge is a little better, I don't. I would be surprised if they had the nuanced knowledge of like how countries were at particular points in history for game setups that would allow them to just like casually put that in the game with accuracy. I'm, I'm pretty sure they would have to at least find somebody who put more time into it than average in order I, to do that. Well, see, I, I would, I would, ag- I, would ag- I would agree, but they might not agree with me. So they might think they have enough and do it anyway. Paradox is not shown to be one of the smarter smarter game devs. So, Well, I agree with that. I, with their historical accuracy issues are not even on my radar as problems with any of their games. Like, I mean, you have to take some liberties just to make a functional game. And for the most part, they're not too blatantly uh, away from history these days. Like, when EU4 dropped, there was Swahili or whatever, because there there's a place they were placeholding like Eastern Africa. But like these days, you you actually have to work to find uh, significant inaccuracies that are not obviously done for the purpose of uh, just making stuff fit into the game at all. And I like, don't take this as me defending them generally, because my gosh, there's some things about them that annoy me. Sixty uh, is greater than sixty. Yeah. Yeah, like there's all kinds of problems. However, their historical accuracy is really not one of them. Well, they did ban you from the forums again. It's true, but I don't know why yet. I'll find that out in a few days. 
I'm curious. For those who don't know, he's been banned several times, usually for calling devs uh, things like, you can't just change the word that is in the English dictionary to be what it means. And he uh, got, yeah, so- he, yeah, he got banned for telling a dev that you can't change the word to mean what you want it to mean. That would be exploit. Yes, that's one example. Uh, but this time, I'm really not sure. I mean, presumably, it's just because I've been pretty negative on the Hearts of Iron forum after the new patch drop because several of the new mechanics don't work. But uh, like, that's it's- saying that isn't against the rules. So I'm curious what they actually uh, thought was out of bounds this time. I'm sure I'm I'll find was- out in a few days. It was just for old times' sake. Yeah. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, like, well, you haven't been banned in a while, so here. <laughs> I'm waiting for the rematch when Victoria 3 comes out and you can finally tell off Wiz again. But I don't play Victoria. It's the same thing with Stellaris when Wiz was on Stellaris. Like, if I don't play the game in question, I'm not going to bother posting on that forum. Anyway, the things I was uh, talking about with uh, the GDC conference was a few things that he said that... Uh, kind of shine a lot of light on what exactly they're intending and what they're doing. Uh, The first thing he said was that he expects players to take 6 to 10 hours per game to reach a victory condition. Now, Mm. um... On standard game speeds, that sounds reasonable to me. Well, sure, but it would be nice if it wasn't like 40% game processing time and then 20% waiting for the rest of things to happen. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, The reason they did the DLC New Frontier pack model the way they did was because they noticed that in the number of people playing chart on Steam, there would always be a lot of hype right after an expansion came out for three months or so, and then people would leave the community and people would go and uh, play other games and not really play Civ all that much, and then there'd be another expansion and the numbers would go back up, and then they saw that with this most recent New Frontiers pass that people stayed longer, they were longer, they were engaged longer, they recorded the highest number of players playing at one time during one of the DLC releases. So apparently ongoing engagement is more important, is fairly important to what they consider for a successful game. Which is very nice from a developer who could easily have just released another expansion pack and do what they did this time with one patch and ignore it. I'm curious, though, how the actual sales numbers compared. Apparently they were pretty good. Because at at the end of the day, like, if you're, uh, and I'm almost afraid to say this out of fear of giving 2K ideas, but... If your game isn't some kind of live service that's like selling microtransactions and stuff like that, uh, what does it matter if what the engagement is like, you know, on a day to day basis? Right. As long as like as long as you're releasing expansions and they sell. Right. Like what difference does it make? Well, that's why I was saying that was a good sign to see, because it meant that the developers at least understand that they want people to play the game rather than just buy little crappy things yeah true for now anyway uh but you know that with these big publishers that can always change with any game series oh the publishers Uh, the publishers are all awful but yeah i mean 2k the the president or ceo whatever of 2k like is on record saying he wants all of their games to have microtransactions and or loot boxes but that that was admittedly like years ago and you know they've been in legal trouble since 
Oh, I don't know if 2K has, but like EA has been and, you know, Ubisoft, I think, has been in all kinds of legal trouble for all kinds of different things. I'm sure one of them is loot boxes. Ubisoft is now owned by Tencent. So when did that happen? Last month. Or rather, they own 49.9% of the parent company. So basically, they have a controlling stake in Ubisoft now, which is great. More money yeah. to the Chinese overlords who want to steal all your data and put you in prison. Great. Now, now, they don't call it prison. No. Because, Camp. because if, if, a, if an American called it a prison, it wouldn't look like a prison. It would look more like a Soviet gulag. But, you know, China be China. Another thing that was uh, mentioned at the GDC conference was um, each of the individual game modes had a separate in-house mini developer in charge of it. So all of them were kind of designed without input from the rest of the designers on the other game modes, which makes a lot of sense as to why some of them conflict so badly and others problems that go with it. Like, oh, we made this thing where you can have corporations and build uh, improvements on the map, but it makes the AI never improve anything. Yeah, I can't. I, I still can't believe that was never fixed. Was that ever? It was. Was that ever fixed. fixed? Oh, good lord! It's on the list of critical game-breaking problems in Civ Six that have never been addressed. Yeah, and it sucks because that that one and the Barbarian Clans one were like easily my two favorite of the New Frontiers, uh, you know, modes. They were like the only two that I would play because I don't I don't care much for all the fantasy stuff. Uh, so it, it's such a huge bummer that one of them just flat out doesn't work and breaks the whole game. It works, but it breaks everything else. Yeah. Well, yeah, it works in that it, it plays, but it, yeah, it, it breaks the entire game. It makes the AI completely inept. Well, thankfully, the guy who came up with that project is now working at Respawn. So, uh, you know, uh, they, like, they can deal with that instead of us. Well, it's it's still a quality control issue. It's not an issue on the act on the individual developer necessarily. No, I mean the guy who came up with the idea that we should give all of these little game modes to separate people and not have them communicate with each other. That was the the guy who created that idea is now at respawn. Ah, oh, okay, gotcha. So my takeaway from this was expect more New Frontier Pass style things in the future from Firaxis. Which, as long as there's still like legit expansion packs and not just this little trickle of, you know, interchangeable optional game modes, I think I'll be okay. As long as they don't pull a paradox and start releasing game uh gameplay features in $20 expansion packs every like 4 months for 10 years on end because that it's would be occasionally awful. obsolete them. Yeah, and especially and still charge if- yeah, and especially if every one of them uh, friggin' makes your old saves no longer compatible and also, like, makes multiplayer, like, a total nightmare because everybody has to have the exact same set of... Well, that's uh, not true, because it uses the DLC of the host no matter what. Yeah, but, but I'm just, it will Civ break. 6 doesn't. Hopefully that stuff doesn't happen, because, I yeah. mean, that's the way it works with Paradox, but, you know... Who knows what would happen with the if Civ started doing that sort of stuff? Currently, there's no good reason Civ couldn't copy that, but the breaking stuff on new patches obnoxious, and it, that would be very difficult to prevent if you are updating mechanics like that in those trickle DLC type things. 
because they often impact the game in some way that you can't just interchangeably switch between having them on or off. And when you're constantly working on some little DLC, it means you don't have the you know person power available to do you know quality control and and patches and bug fixes necessarily, because yeah. every, everybody's working on that next piece of DLC in perpetual you know hopefully not crunch but you know perpetual development cycle and never actually being in a proper maintenance cycle. To be fair, I think if Firaxis did it, that probably wouldn't be as big an issue because they're not going to put like twelve people only on a single game development team. Paradox seems to have partially figured that out with EU4 because the Tinto team, like they grabbed bugs that were probably eight years old up until current. Yeah. Uh, So there's still like some problems in the game, but it's just incredible how much cleaner it is than a year ago. Well, the, the thing that they said in the dev diaries was Paradox Tinto used the bug fixing log as a way to teach their developers how the code worked. So in the process of fixing all that stuff, that's how they learned what things do what and how the code is put together, how it manages things and how it handles various other things. Interesting. It's a very good way to figure out a code base if you're brand new to it, is to take a task like that and just use it to familiarize yourself with how things are built. Unfortunately, yeah, I, you don't want a situation where you have 800 unfixed bugs for multiple years on end. Yeah, I mean, but fixing that did involve uh, changing processes significantly. Well, if, and if it's a training exercise and you don't mind your new, you know, hires not necessarily being, you know, quote unquote productive, uh, you could also always keep, you know, backlogs of old broken code to give to them to learn the code base and fix those, you know, issues just as a learning tool, you know, before you move them on to like the actual, you know, code repositories of working, you know, living code. Well, if you've got code repositories that you're going to show them to show them how to do it the right way, you might as well just give them the correct code. I mean, it, 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 it depends on what you're trying to do. Like, cause with, at least with the old stuff, like, you know, what the problems are and, you know, ostensibly what the fixes are. So, you know, as like a test, it's a little bit, better than just giving them the current code and hoping they find the bugs and and fix them properly i but, guess i mean I, either way you know works if, if the programmers are worth their salt like either way you're you're gonna get you know probably good outcomes progress yeah it just depends on how much of that how much of their training and learning you want to actually be like productive work with measurable deliverables and how much of it you want to just be like literally just them learning and not actually contributing anything yet i mean i imagine it works better in sweden because they charge they price their dlcs based on the amount of work the team did rather than the amount of content they actually include and we have this from the horse's mouth so but we should go back to civ topics your turn phil yes we should Or sort of Civ topics, perhaps. Should you build railroads? I don't have the uh, source video for this, uh, but I guess we are covering the railroad improvement generally. I can man. I can give you the exact list of what he said. You should build okay. them if you need to be on a map that requires you to move around fast. 
you should build them if you're doing domination and you should build them if you're using vampires so you should build them basically only in those three cases but he, he said one case that's always true so you should build them oh right i forgot <laughs> And yes, I I do in fact value railroads. I wonder why that might be. <laughs> I don't know, because you're always motor mo- murder hoboing across the continent. The correct way to play. That being said, it is unfortunate how late uh, they are, but they are very valuable. Now, real- even though the obvious use of them is for moving units, they also do have what is it like a twenty percent or fifty percent or whatever boost to trade uh, routes that get more money go- out of them. Uh, so traders any, are going along them. Yeah, any if you've got a robust trade network, you know, it doesn't matter what victory type you're going for. Like the a railroad railroads are going to help. And they don't cost any maintenance and you know, they don't actually uh exhaust charges from the military engineers. So one military engineer can hypothetically build your entire railroad network. So it's not like you have to be constantly devoting an you know, a, an entire city's production to pumping out uh, military engineers in order to build these things. Now you do have to go out of your way a little bit to get them because you've got to research the appropriate text. You've got to have an encampment somewhere with an armory in order to build a military engineer. And when military engineers are first unlocked, they are not cheap. Uh, it is a significant investment just to get that first one or two military engineer. Well, you're not going to be building a military engineer to construct railroads when they first become available though. So uh, by the time you're at steam power, you're probably a little bit more productive. Yeah, they're probably two or three turns, maybe, if if that, at that point in the game. Uh, and yeah, you only need a couple, it. like you said, because yeah, placing railroads onto roads where, where you probably want them is uh, just going to cost you resources in time, well, turn time, I guess. And if you have, you know, a small group of military engineers that are dedicated to building railroads... Uh, like I said, they're not using up their charges. So one of the other benefits of having those is that if you're playing with disasters on, I'm pretty sure they can repair pillaged uh, improvements as well. So your builders are then more free to, uh, you know, build your improvements and all that stuff. And your military engineers, you know, in between uh, hammering out railroads can be used to repair any da- tiles that are uh, damaged by like disasters or whatever. Correct. Which I think also does not, uh, I don't think repairing tiles uses up a charge either, so. No, it doesn't. No, not even for builders. So yeah, 0.25 movement instead of 0.5 for modern roads. It's a pretty significant upgrade. If you need to get stuff to the front, that's the way to do it. I think we're getting some wind from somebody. I don't know. It's not very controversial because you don't have to build that much of an investment to make use of railroads and they, like, they don't have a cost once they're produced like nope. you, don't, you don't maintain them so yeah you just have to have at Excuse least them. the one encampment with an armory well which is not a, uh, not a huge investment but I was gonna, i'm just going to assume you have that because there's one victory condition <laughs> yeah <sighs> i've heard this like twice in two episodes now it, no, it wasn't the last one it was the one before the guest co-host was telling me all about how i should be a domination player I don't mm, want to be well, a domination player. At least you had a good guest host. Somebody very knowledgeable about how things should be. That said, you should probably have an, at least one encampment, generally. Yeah, usually. <laughs> you probably want a great general if you get stuck in a war. Uh, you probably want to be able to produce you know, useful units and upgrade them 
Like you need military, even if you are for some reason doing Chobo victory conditions. Yeah, even so. if it's a defensive military, like you might as well have an encampment with like a barracks and an army or whatever, so that that small defensive military that you do have at least has a couple promotions. Well, the reason I didn't build encampments a lot in the early part of the game's history is because when we used to build, like when I used to build the armory and the uh, barracks and all those buildings, whenever you'd upgrade the unit, it would lose the bonus. And um, so we didn't know that at the time, I don't think, because it was pointed out and fixed in a much later patch. But I would always build them, and then I'd think, these units don't get promotions any faster than anybody else, because I would build the unit when it first came out and then go to war three centuries or three eras later, Usually because somebody attacked me and I was just like, leave me alone. I'm going to kill you with all this stuff that I have. Or more likely, somebody decided to recruit partisans in my neighborhood. But uh, I remember it just didn't work the way it was supposed to. So I stopped building them. And then when railroads came around, it was like, oh, now I have a reason to build armories. And I don't think they had fixed that bug yet until one or two patches after that happened. But either it's way, in a, a, a lot of great generals, though. Yeah, it's kind of like how when uh, Civ Six first came out, I would never build city centers on top of resources because I was used to older civilization games where that would destroy the underlying resource. Uh, even though in Civ Six, building directly on top of uh, luxury resource in particular is good play because you get those yields uh, sooner with your first population point. Well, luxury yeah. yields have always been good to settle on, haven't they? No, in older really, versions of the in, game, it would just it would destroy the luxury on, on the tile. It would it basically well, building a city would clear the tile. So that's uh, that's certainly not true in Civ 4, but you would not get any special benefit from working the luxury because you would only get the yields of the base tile that were above what you would ordinarily get from a city. So like if you settled on a plains hill stone, then instead of being like two food, one production, it would be two food, three production because the plains hill stone had three production. Uh, with no improvements. Uh, but then if you had, like, you settled on corn or something, then it would just be three food on your city tile, uh, and then one production or whatever. Whereas if you didn't settle on it, and you improved the tile, and it was next to uh, water, then you could have, like, a six food uh, tile. So in that at that point, settling on it would have been awful relative to settling near it and working it after improving it. So you, in Civ 4, you'd only want to settle on stuff that you didn't really get much benefit uh, from doing tile improvements. However, you did still get access to the resource in question regardless. And then in Civ 5, I think it was the same way. I believe so. Bonus resources would go the away. There. Bonus resources would go away. Yeah. And then um, luxury do, resources... Yes. Luxury resources would stay, but they wouldn't be improved. Although in yeah. Civ 5, you arguably should never improve bananas anyway. So some of the tile yields in Civ 5 were weird. You absolutely should always improve bananas. Take a screenshot out of it and email it to Medjin. No, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Any value you might lose in the game from doing that is more than offset by the positive value of griefing. You lose two hammers and get one food. Yeah. I'm telling you. Oh, wait, it, no. Griefing is more valuable. You lose two hammers and you use lose whatever you got from the jungle. So you lost a science. I and... respect the attempt at optimization, but you are optimizing for the wrong goal. That's, that's all there is to it. Okay, what's the goal to optimize for here? Griefing. That's not a goal. That is a troll. <laughs> it's a troll goal. Okay. 
Let's talk about Jason's favorite topic, or the <laughs> Mega Bears fan's favorite topic. Okay, well, we've got a um, topic on Civ Fanatics uh, posted by Zagan Kitty. Uh, how would you design nomadic civilizations? And um, anybody who's been listening to this for a while will know that uh, one of my favorite Civ soapboxes is I would like to see better representation of uh, nomadic and pastoral uh, civilizations. So this topic is right up my alley. And um, the original poster, I think, is is basically posting an idea for uh, unique Civ abilities uh, in the context of like Civ Six that for Mongolia and Scythia, uh, which would just be to uh, they can't settle cities at the very beginning of the game, and uh, they can only settle cities on featureless tiles, and then similar to like the Maori uh, who start in the middle of the ocean. Uh, these nomadic civs should get like plus two science, two culture, faith uh, every turn before settling a city to make up for the fact that they're not getting any yields from a city itself. And then also occasionally uh, free units. So, oh my goodness. Yeah, that's kind of a lot. <laughs> uh, I don't know about, I don't know if the free units are necessarily. Well, I, I guess the difference is if you're a nomadic civilization on land. Like, you have other civs and barbarians to contend with, whereas, like, the Maori, starting out in the middle of the ocean, like, at the beginning of the game, there's not, like, you know, barbarian caravels just floating around yet. So, yeah, yeah. so you don't really... There's not much in the way of a threat, imminent threat to the Maori, whereas there would be for a civilization that is starting out with Maori's ability, but on land. Uh, so I, I guess that does sort of make sense. Um, it's just a matter of how much is too much and, you know, you'd have to play to figure that out. Um, and then also, uh, this poster's idea is that after you have at least two cities, I don't know why you would need it. I, I guess the second city. Yeah. You can pack up any non-capital city and then they become like a nomad settler unit that you can move somewhere else and resettle that city. Uh, and also, they propose having the ability to change the capital, similar to what uh, Dido can do in Civ Six, and uh, and then when you plop that new city back down, you should get a free builder. So that's uh, Zagan Zagan idea. Uh, I mean, it it sounds workable. The big issue is with motivation. What reason would the player have to do this? And I think that's kind of the, the biggest hurdle that Civ needs to overcome if they're going to make playable nomadic civilizations. Because we've had proofs of concept for this uh, in the past in Civ and also in other games. And that's kind of always been the problem, too. So we had, you know, Beyond Earth, uh, Rising Tide, which had those aquatic cities that, you know, could move around. Um, and the reason that the game gave to make you have to do that periodically is if I remember correctly, the cities, the aquatic cities don't expand their culture borders. Like the default way that other land-based cities do. They only expanded their culture borders by moving the city and therefore like being uh, next to uh, new tiles. And I think you could also buy tiles as well, but I believe that's correct. It's been years since I've played. So so they had to artificially construct this, you know, reason to make someone want to move a city, uh, which, you know, is maybe not great. 
because the, the reason that you would pack up and move, uh, you know, a settlement, you know, for like an actual, you know, nomadic culture and history would be resources. Uh, either the resources are depleted near where you are. So you pack up and you go somewhere else that has more resources or, you know, you're better stewards of the land and you know to pack up and move before you've, you know, run all the soil into the ground or, or depleted all the other resources or killed all the animals or whatever, uh, overhunted, all that stuff. So, uh, and that's not really modeled in civilization at all. Just and make I, it so you can't produce settlers and you can only get them after an X number of turns or whatever, similar to the late cavalry. Yeah. That way, uh, you might have to move your cities to get access to resources you care about. Right. Um, now, Civ Six did add the disasters, which I guess could hypothetically give you a motivation to want to pack up and move a city. If you're one of those, if you have one of those unlucky games where you settle your city next to a river, and it's one of those rivers that floods like every fifteen or twenty turns uh, in the game, and you're constantly having your districts and improvements destroyed, uh, I guess that could be a good reason to want to pack up that city and and move it somewhere else. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think the big thing is. Civ would have to rethink the way that they do resources and they would probably have to have some system where resources can actually be depleted and this would serve as a motivating factor for a nomadic civilization to move or even for a non-nomadic civilization to expand because you know also historically that's typically why um, cultures would expand and build new cities and settlements it's not just to have more of stuff it's because like they would actually consume all of the local resources and they need colonies to bring in more resources. I don't think you have to do that. You could make it so that nomadic uh, civilizations could choose either through tech or just a, an interface uh, to settle down at some point. Because uh, very many of the historical nomadic civilizations did exactly that one way or another. They would conquer territory that was conducive to it and they, and they effectively became the ruling class of that region. Uh, and they were not very nomadic after doing so. Yeah, very true. So that's but something that you could implement in the game, and that would give you an out for when it stops making sense to be nomadic in gameplay. To be fair, though, some, uh, some of the countries that we consider having done that didn't fully become sedentary. Like, I was doing research into Turkmenistan the other day. Don't go there. It's a terrible place. They were forcibly settled down by the Soviets over the whole time they existed, and some of them are still nomadic even today. So... Well, sure, but, like, the game models that, too. But you have the, you have the opportunity slash whatever to do that, and there are plenty of examples of historical uh, nomadic uh, governments effectively settling down in a way that the game could reasonably say it's modeling. Like, yeah, okay, not everyone chose to do that. That's fine. You could choose not to do that in the game, too. And it's probably a bad idea unless you're able to conquer the world like that or something. Which, I mean, if you're getting a light cavalry uh, unit every three turns, if you can come up with any way to get city walls down, that's uh, <laughs> that well, might be good enough. I think it's just the, the free cavalry is until you found a city and then you've got to build them yourself. Well, so. what if you don't found a city, though? What if you spend 90 turns wandering around with your now 30 light horsemen that you are using to fight a two or three front war. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're, I mean, That's you're what right. I'm saying. Like there, yeah. there might be, uh, th there might be some incentive to take that route too. And that, that certainly has the feel of some of the nomadic civilizations in history as well, being a threat for things like that. 
That, now that, I, oh. I think that might actually be a little strong, honestly, but it, it's a fun idea. And maybe you can alter that until it is reasonable that the other nations, if they really try, can defend themselves. Or maybe there's a cap on the number of horsemen you can have while you're unsettled. That's true, too. Yeah. Or you have to do something to get them. So other games, and this brings me to the, the next, you know, kind of subtopic, which is that there are other games that have tried to handle uh, nomadic civilizations uh, to some degree or the other. Uh, case in point, uh, Humankind, uh, the very first era of the game is um, a tribal era where you are nomadic. You don't settle cities yet. And the way that they do, um, the way they handle that is as you're exploring when you pick up uh, resources around the map or you like win battles with wildlife or whatever, you collect food uh, and when the, on the unit and when the unit collects enough food, it spawns another um, scout unit. So you could have something like that where uh, you don't just automatically get these horse units for free. Uh, you could get them from, you know, performing some certain task, uh, you know, things like finding goody huts or, um, you know, maybe there could be some action that your settler or whatever does on uh, resource tiles, like food tiles or whatever, where they collect it or harvest it. Um, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, go away like when a normal sieve harvests it. And then when you collect a certain amount of that, you know, you cross certain thresholds then you spawn another unit. So there would be some some control, controlling mechanism for how many you can spawn. They could do something like that. Like you could camp on, <clears throat> obviously, if your horse base culture you already know animal husband you know where horses are you camp on that tile with your settler for a couple of turns that generates a new unit something like that yeah we are getting closer and closer to playing as barbarian camps i like it right well and one of the other ideas that i've pitched for civ um specifically is even if it's not feasible to make a playable nomadic civilization you know like the rules of the game just don't make it so that you know being nomadic is ever something that it would be compelling to do. But then again, in Civ Five, they found a way to make playing as a city state, you know, with Venice, uh, fun and interesting. So I, I wouldn't put it. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past them. Uh, but one of the ideas that I've also pitched is to just get rid of barbarians altogether and further develop this idea of the barbarian clans that was in New Frontiers. So that instead of them being barbarians, they're basically nomadic equivalents of city states where they move around the map. They have you know you know, but military, but also civilian units. And, you know, maybe there's some benefit to doing diplomacy with them. Like maybe you can actually let them temporarily settle down in your territory and they like work tiles for you, you know, or they pay taxes or, or something like that, uh, you know, to supplement your own population. Or of course, you know, you can, and then of course you could maybe bribe them to attack other, you know, civilizations and stuff like that, just like you can currently do with the barbarian clans. Uh, and this way, like, you don't have this, you know, iffy concept of, like, a barbarian, you know, faction within the game that's, like, you know, subhuman. Uh, so, you know, they would and they would all be have some sort of cultural identity, you know, based on real, you know, historic civilizations. And they'd all be people who can be, you know, reasoned with and traded with. And, you know, there's reasons to not just uh, annihilate them, you know, off the face of the planet. I, I don't see the distinction. You say subhuman. That's just anybody whose civilization is not my civilization. Ah, yeah. yes. The uh, Roman. Some, some of them have cities, yeah. granted, yeah. and those cities are a little harder to take than the camps. But otherwise, what's the difference? Yes. The, the Roman definition of barbarian. Got it. Yeah. They don't yeah, speak like me. Kill. 
Yes, they they wear pants. Destroy them. Oh, well, that's <laughs> like a cardinal sin. You're not allowed to. Yeah, yeah every, that's ridiculous. Who would, you, who would do that? If you don't wear togas, you are you are not human. Um, but other games as well that have tried doing stuff like this. The example that I've always gone to in the past has been uh, Total War Attila. Although Canis reminded me of another example in in the chat earlier this week, which is uh, John Schaefer's At the Gates. And that whole game you play as, um, you know, the quote unquote barbarian cultures that, you know, invaded and sacked Rome. Uh, I don't even think that game has an option to play as like a large, you know, civilization. Like, I don't think you can play as Rome. Like Total War Attila, you don't have to play as the Huns. Like you can still play as like the Eastern or Western Roman empires, right? And play like traditional city-based Total War. Uh, but without the gates, I think it's all just playing as um, barbarians. And it's been a couple of years since I've played it. I did play it briefly. If I remember correctly, the way that it worked is you could only ever have one city. And when you do deplete the resources around that city, you you pack it up and you move it. And you keep all of like the uh, um, the population that you've gained. And I think also you like pack up all the infrastructure and then you replace the infrastructure when you rebuild the city somewhere else. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's been a long time since I've played. And that, that game has a much smaller time scale than, you know, Civilization. That game is played on seasons as, uh, you know, each turn represents like a month instead of like 50 years, like the early turns in uh, in Civilization represent. So, you know, that's another issue is is making modeling these ideas on a time scale that makes sense within, you know, Civilization where you are progressing you know, 20 or 50 or 100 turns uh, or 100 years in a single turn. Uh, that also makes things difficult. That makes a lot of things difficult with the, the civilization. I don't know. Nomadic civs were a thing for thousands of years in practice, like more or less. Right. But if, if they were seasonal nomads, right, where they just move back and forth around a small area, then like that's going to be harder to model because... You know, you don't have seasons in. Well, Sid. you don't. You don't have to model the the migration of like the the people within the territory. Then, like you can just abstract that, but the, you would still be able to model the differences, uh, how they work. You know, from city to city, uh, compared to a regular civ. Yeah, so it would be you know probably some kind of of different way of growing your cities rather than you know necessarily moving them. Yeah, or just having like population in a territory or whatever. Like there there are things you could do. I mean, even just having an, an ability where you can just move population freely between your cities uh, could be a way of modeling certain, you know, nomadic states. Oof, that, that would have to have some constraints on it or that would be busted. <laughs> You'd be able to stand up new things you settle so quickly, get all the infrastructure and then the shift the population around and grow more. That would certainly give motivation for using the mechanic. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, like, that would be an overwhelming advantage in the current setup of the game. So you, yeah, you would either have to change yeah. how things work or, like, you would have to put constraints on that or it would go, it would be ridiculous pretty quickly. <laughs> and there is some danger of that. When you have some uh, some choices that are so mechanically different from other choices, uh, usually one of them is way better uh, objectively when the dust settles on the game's mechanics. It's almost impossible to balance and we do see that with hordes in EU4. They are far and away the strongest world conquest uh, options in the game, despite that they're after the period where uh, nomadic conquest was at its height. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's nothing that's even close. Like it's to the degree where playing as the Oyat horde is objectively a better choice for forming the Roman Empire than like France or an Italian state or even the Ottomans. 
starting as somebody north of China and conquering the world is faster than an ordinary nation can reform Rome. Well, Civ has is definitely gone in a more asymmetrical uh, uh, play design in the with the past uh, two iterations of the game. So, um, I mean, it's it's that's still not necessarily a deal breaker. I oh mean, yeah, that's for sure. And like it's, Civs have not been balanced between uh, nations and Civ for many years now. Uh, really, not since Civ two, <laughs> technically. Yeah, I mean, we we still talk about you know civs in in civ 6 like grand columbia being like crazy overpowered or australia yeah uh, so yeah and civ I mean, 4 hall of fame banned inca from like the monthlies what color inca are you yeah i mean you could submit them to general games in the hall of fame but you could not like compete for specific challenges with them because they if you were allowed to then everyone would display inca at least allegedly and that's probably true in a lot of settings but it's probably not universally true but it was true enough that they didn't want to deal with the hassle of considering when the exceptions would be in vanilla, it was. Well, that remained through BTS, just because the ability to warrior rush successfully on the high difficulties was oppressive. But yeah, I definitely do think that, especially with the push in Civ Five and Civ Six to you know model you know new cultures, uh, you know that we haven't seen in Civ before. I, I definitely think it's time for Firaxis to try to do something with um, with some kind of nomadic gameplay, whether they're playable Civs or even if it is, like I said, just. Uh, you know, some kind of iteration on the Barbarian Clans uh, game mode. Uh, you know, I, I definitely think it would be nice to see that, you know, type of living be represented uh, within the game. I mean, uh, you even could make uh, Barbarians playable, like a Barbarian camp playable in a general game and to, like allow the progression into a city-state that is then allowed to be playable to that player. Yeah, there's and been You'd have to like tweak scenarios. things a little bit, but you could make that work a little bit, even in currents of six to a degree. Yeah, and, and there's been, I think, playable um, like scenarios for playing as uh, barbarians. Um, yeah, in past of In fact, I think Civ Five like actually did have a um, a scenario game mode where you play as like the Huns or someone like that, and you don't have cities. Like you are basically playing as barbarians. Civ Four did uh, for sure. Yeah, and I think Civ Five had something like that too. It was one of the few um, game mode scenarios that I actually uh, played. I don't think I ever beat it, but I did play it briefly. Civ Five had very few scenarios. Yeah, so it, it's it's not like this isn't something that the devs have experimented with, you know, from time to time. They did it in Beyond Earth. They've done it with game modes in in the past. They, you know took a step in that direction with the barbarian clans and new frontiers. So it's, they've been flirting with the idea for several iterations of Civ now, but just haven't, uh, you know, haven't gone full on, you know, haven't jumped in the yet. lake. Yeah. They've, they've been dipping their toe in, but uh, they haven't, uh, no, and, and no one's pushed them in yet either. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things that they probably love the concept of it, but making it work with the main game may be the problem. And this is where having competition in this niche marketplace makes a difference because, you know, now it, it's not just Civ. You know, we have games like Humankind that have that no, nomadic era in the game. You know, we have games like At the Gates. We have, um, you know, Total War Attila. You know, we have Be uh, Beyond Earth Rising Tide. So, you know, there's there's been examples now of this kind of idea working or, you know, not working so great, uh, you know, depending on the game. So, uh you know, it's not like they have to completely reinvent the wheel here. Like they, you know, there's examples to look at. Just let me micro all the barbarian units in multiplayer games. That'll be fun. Bill's just going to play the barbarians in our games from now on just for the challenge. 
Oh yeah. no. <laughs> it definitely matches with Phil's playstyle for sure. And then I'll uh, I'll settle into a city state and keep going. Yeah. In all the wars. Phil with his disgusting uncivilized pants. <laughs> Look, I, I will tell you again and again, I prefer to wear pants as infrequently as possible. Just because we're barbarians doesn't mean we wear pants. But also, chafing with a toga when you're riding a horse, oof. Oh, well, no. Just sounds to me like you don't have civilized saddles. Okay, so speaking of barbarians, um, our friends Doormonster showed up and made another video, this one about barbarian clans. Um, how would we describe this? Uh, humorous? <laughs> it is amusing, yes. <laughs> well, it's a riff on the idea of the barbarians out-teching the actual civilizations, uh, which is always a frustrating thing when, you know, you're in like the classical era or whatever and you know suddenly Someone, the... so mux, so, bleh, somebody shows up with musket men yeah and yeah a barbarian shows up with yes. musket men and it's like what the heck it's because <laughs> korea's on the other side of the map and it has not been blocked expanding of course it's always korea or <laughs> babylon yeah. yeah samaria congo but yeah it's uh this this video is just a a few you know barbarian clans sitting around a campfire talking about uh barbarian business and that includes uh oh look i just invented this tank <laughs> also they they were getting pretty cranky about one of their friends becoming a city-state and then they kind of realized oh wait uh we might be becoming extinct we should probably think about that ourselves yeah we like farms we like eating food and then dandolo showed up <laughs> it's a good throwback to earlier videos yeah the sif five uh... videos were good too I think they also had another video like a few weeks ago. I don't know if we uh, talked about it I, or if I linked it in our, our chat. Um, uh, but I, was, I think there was that the one with the workers. I, yeah, I think it was a, a, a video about builders. Yeah, we talked about that one. Did we? OK, so yeah, door monsters back making their humorous little civ videos. They're also making podcasts now, too. So, oh, are they? Have you listened to any of it? I've listened to part of one of them, and it's mostly hey, this is what we did when we were younger, and this is what we did on our YouTube channel years ago, and this is the behind the scenes, and it's interesting. Not, I don't know if I'd say it's good, but it's interesting. Well, probably worthwhile if you enjoyed their uh, content previously. Definitely better than us, though. <laughs> oh, well, that's a, that's a low bar, Canis. Yeah, we're not interesting <laughs> at all. I, I, I know they have professional equipment and a studio and everything, and we have, what, a headset? We have Discord. We have a Discord, we have a headset, we have uh, assorted microphones, assorted microphones and various computers of varying strength and no time during the week to actually do anything related to our show prep. But hey, we're still here. We also have OBS. We do Fly also tech. have OBS and we do have Civ. Much better than you could get 20 years ago. Much, much better. Much I, I better than know. you could get 10 Dan, years ago. Yeah, I don't know how Dan did it 10, 15 years ago. He didn't stream it 10 years ago. Oh, that's a big thing, I guess, yeah. That involved all of us recording locally on Audacity and then uploading it, and then him putting all that together. Yes. Yeah, those are some big files. <laughs> it was not It was not pre-broadband, but it was early broadband, so you can imagine. Yeah, like three-hour MP3s. 
Yeah. Because yeah. we went on and on and on and Multiple on. Multiple of those. Usually more than four, because we tended to have several guests. At least five. Anyway, I think now that we've waxed nostalgic, it's time to say goodbye to everybody. So, uh, who did I put in charge of that? Off you go, then! Thank you for uh, joining us on Polycast episode 410. I'm the main team, and as usual, joined by Canis Alvinus. I'm still here, even though I flew away. Maklua? You flew where? Away. And Mega Bears fan. And we're all gonna fly away now. Fly, fly, fly. Fly away on the railroads to domination. With our flocks a mile wide. Flock of seagulls, what? Yes, migrating from place to place. <laughs> seagulls are nice animals. I, I don't know if you guys Bye. have ever seen the big flocks of sandhill cranes that sometimes go through where I live. It look, it feels like Africa because you look up and it's like, oh, those birds are a thousand feet above me and there's more than a thousand of them. And I can hear them from the ground. And that's the only way I would know they're there because they're very small up in the sky. But they're come down, you come down to the ground and they're like the size of a flamingo. No, we just get geese from the uh, retirement community across the street. Those are also nice animals. Geese are the worst. Between them and seagulls, man, I'm not sure. They're both, uh, they're both interesting. I've had seagulls annoy me more than uh, geese in the past. They're both nasty, nasty animals. So yeah. are swans. But like geese, like are less likely to harass me in particular. So, well, yeah, because Pro- you you live near the ocean. Well, not that near. To, compared to us. Well, yeah, okay, relatively yes. Yes. But I mean, like I, where I live doesn't get seagulls either. So I only experience seagulls when I do go to the water. What is this? Way too far inland for seagulls. What is this ocean of which you speak? <laughs> I have a fake I just, one. Just keep going in one direction, you'll eventually hit it. I just go northeast and I can see this really big lake that's actually not that voluminous, so it turns green every year and it's really gross. Nice. Called Lake I Erie. Mini, I get mini man-made lakes. Yeah, I've had like geese nearby and Muscovy ducks nearby and stuff too from time to time, but Muscovy. they are, at least in the past, they have they've not been brave enough to mess with me. Where <laughs> seagulls are. All of the COVID molecules in your house turn into COVID molecules, and there's just <laughs> tens and tens of thousands of crows just in the house. I don't know what bird it is. It's some sort of a dark bird. I don't know if it's ravens or crows, but every about every November or so, there's like where I go over where there's Target, the Target I go to, they are all along the tele the power line, the telephone line things that are by this sort. Well, if, that if they're Ravens are pretty big birds, so if, if they're huge, they're probably ravens. If they're not huge, then they're probably crows. Yeah, but it's just, it's, it's, it's like the old Alfred Hitchcock movie, the amount of birds you see in one spot, at that one intersection right in front of it. Don't worry, you could take them. Uh, no. There's probably a- too many to make it comfortable. Yes. It's just like Discworld when you're drunk, although I've not played that myself, but when Discworld? you're drunk and you appraise enemies, you can always take them. Oh, yeah. Like, no, I could take that guy. I could take all these guys. Yeah. Yeah, from what Lance was telling me, you could, like, uh, analyze, like, a monster, like a griffin or something, and you're, like, level 10. It's like, yeah, I could take that. <laughs> Somebody's analysis has failed yeah. if you think Beat that. down this griffin, no trouble.
Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 sound clips. Copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net.